this morning. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 14. We're going to not quite finish the chapter. Uh, we will do that when we come back into it uh, sometime in the new year. Probably not till February because we're going to do our Advent series and then another series in, in January. That should be fun. Uh, but I thought it would be a good idea to uh, give a bit of a recap this morning um, because we're, we're actually only 30 minutes in, probably maybe 45 minutes in, to a luncheon that Jesus was invited to. He was an invited guest to this luncheon in this Pharisee's home. And, and so far we've seen two stages to this particular dinner. It was an interesting dinner if you've been with us. And if you weren't, by the way, you can catch all of our past sermons on iTunes, on our podcasts, or on our YouTube channel. The actual video is up, and you can see them there. And so we've seen two stages. Today is the final stage in this, this dinner. And, and my hope is, is I hope anyway, because there's been some challenging things that Jesus has been saying to these people uh, on this day. But I'm hoping also that we can, uh, we've maybe picked up some very helpful and some encouraging words from the heart of Christ, uh, because obviously he's, uh, he's correcting their bad theology, these Pharisees, and their, their wrong idea about the gospel, but at the same time, the reason why he's doing it is because he wants them to believe and trust in him as the Messiah. So he's doing it because he cares about them. But it's pretty challenging stuff, and yet I'm hopeful that we learned uh, some lessons about how to be um, really uh, humble guests when we're invited somewhere and not, not sit in the, the, the seat of prestige or really close to the, the, the host, but you know, we'll, we'll take the lower place and we'll be humble guests. But also as hosts, uh, when we have dinner parties, we wouldn't just invite people that are our besties, our best friends, or, or people that are of an influence so that maybe we can get some sort of reciprocation from them. No, we, we would also invite those who are needy, those who are, um, who are lost, or those who are needing friends and don't really have any. And so those are the, some really amazing lessons. But I, I think also, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've probably picked up on the fact that at this dinner, it's been a little tense. <laughs> There's some tension in the room. And uh, I know some of you have mentioned it in small group and uh, even to me, like as if like I'm creating it. No, Jesus is the, He's the one doing this in this particular, but it starts from the very beginning, right? The very beginning of this story, at the beginning of chapter 14, we are told that when Jesus is invited and comes to this meal, they're watching him. It literally says they were watching him carefully. So all of their eyes are on Jesus. And let's be clear, these weren't like welcoming, affection-oriented eyes. No, these were critical eyes. And so there was a tension in the room right from the very moment that he walks in the door. In fact, as we learned, the whole dinner party was a setup. The whole point of having Jesus come to this dinner is that the Pharisee and his buddies, his cronies, wanted to show the people one last time for sure that this man was a Sabbath breaker, a lawbreaker, and that he would do the one thing, on, especially on the Sabbath, that you should not do, heal someone who is sick. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But that's the setup. That's why they did that. And so there's this tension in the room. They sit this guy who has dropsy, uh, anemia would be a modern-day diagnosis of that, uh, right across the table from Jesus. And, and they're like, okay, they got their eyes on him. They're like, okay, go ahead. Do what any... What does Jesus do? Well, he cuts the tension, doesn't he? No, he, he heals the man. And then he sends him on his way. And all's good, right? No. The tension seems to increase, and particularly... 
when Jesus decides at that point to give the Pharisee and his friends and his buddies a quick lesson about the Sabbath. And he calls them out. He calls the, the invited ones out for, for, you know, coming. And he's been watching them as they arrived at this dinner party. And they're going to the most prestigious seats closest to the table of honor, to the host's chair, rather than the lowest place. And so he literally is calling people out publicly for doing that. And then he points to the host and he goes, and look, look, look at who you've invited. Your best friends, your, your wealthy and, and rich friends. And so it, it keeps adding to the tension. And so, so far at this point, I think it would be clear to say this. Aside from Jesus and maybe a couple of his disciples who were invited to be there with him, there's a lot of tension in the room. In fact, I think it's probably gotten to the point where the the truth is the Pharisee and his friends are frustrated, confused, and maybe angry with Jesus. This is tension. Then Luke records what we read next in the story. So read with me, beginning uh, in chapter 14 and verse 15, we read these words. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard him say these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who he had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I I just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me be excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and look, there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this time here today. Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts today. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the invitations that you sent, that you continue to send today. May we see that be what this story is about. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts, teach us, grow us, transform us right here today as we hear these words by Jesus in this story. And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. So your sermon title for today is The Greatest Invitation. I came up with that myself, okay? I would suggest to you that's exactly what this is. And I hope to show you three things in this text. First of all, there are the invitations, as you've heard. There are also the excuses. And then thirdly, the invitation stands, at least for now. 
Let me put verse 15 on the screen for you, and we'll look at the point number one, the invitations. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So as I've said earlier, we're about 30 minutes into this dinner party, right? It's been going rather poorly for the host, I think, at this point in time. And you can cut the tension with a knife. And so what does one of the guests do? Well, essentially what he says here in this verse and what we read here is he's basically, you know, he's been listening to this. He's probably looking at his plate. He's been waiting to eat. And he basically is saying, okay, enough of this chit-chat. Thank you for the lessons, Jesus. Let's eat. Now, some of you might be looking at that text and you're going, okay, pastor, (laughs) I don't quite read it that way. Where are you getting that? And that's actually a really good question. On that basis, let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite way of making a toast? You know, like, you know, a cheers, right? Uh, it could be at any event. It can be different for different events, right? There's a, I know at our Christmas table, we'll always have a, have a you know, a, a glass of wine or a sparkling grape juice for those of you who are into that. And, uh, you know, we, we will have a cheer. We will, but, you know, be a, it'll be a blessing as well. And we'll be thankful or Thanksgiving's another good example of that. We used to get together often with our church planting buddies uh, in Vancouver. Uh, we used to call it our cadres. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting term, but it's, it's a meeting. It's a gathering, get-together. And we would usually go out for lunch uh, at some point, you know, 12, 14 guys in a restaurant, church planters, you know, and, and many of the guys would order some libations, and, and we would, our standard toast was, to the king. And I know some of you, that's like weird, but we meant, of course, what we meant. It was to King Jesus. That's exactly what's going on here, actually. That's exactly what this man is doing. He is providing a toast in this room. It's a, it was a standard toast in that day. Basically, you can see him listening to Jesus. There's tension in the room, and, and he's like grabbing a glass of wine, which is in front of him, which would have been on the table, and he's like, okay, blessings, guys. Like, let's eat, all right? I'm getting hungry and you know, let's eat like we're going to eat when we get into the kingdom of God. Somebody please pass the hummus. Let's go. That's what we're reading here. In fact, these kind of blessings, this kind of a a toast uh, had been going on for centuries, actually, in the Jewish faith. And it all began, it all began out of a passage which I want to put on screen for you from Isaiah. And it's interesting, again, Isaiah, the prophet, is one we read this morning in our Advent readings. And he's always prophesying often about the coming of the Messiah. But he's also prophesying often about the Messiah's kingdom. And so we read this in Isaiah 25. It says this. This is the prophet Isaiah making this prophecy. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. That's important. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined really makes a point about this, this food and wine, doesn't he? He really goes on about it. But then he says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. And then these beautiful words, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear, away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord himself has spoken. So every faithful Jew for centuries now knew that there was a great banquet coming. 
And so anytime you're invited to a wedding feast or a, a, a luncheon in a respected ruling Pharisee's home, or there's a picture of a great banquet coming, this is a toast. This is how you would actually give a toast. So once again, however, this toast highlights his Jewish understanding, doesn't it? His Jewish understanding was is that, of course, all of us Jews are going to be in the kingdom. Of course, all of us here at this dinner table, well, maybe not you, Jesus, you Sabbath breaker. Of course, we're all going to be in. Look, look at us. We're, we're approved by God because of the things that we do. Look at our religion. And of course, Jesus wants to, you know, he wants to break the tension, right, and agree with him. Not quite. <laughs> I mean, the reality is, is that Jesus does what Jesus has been doing in this meal, and usually he's basically going to say to this man, surprise. He says this to him. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now the banquet is ready. Come, the table is set. The food is warm. The wine is ready to be poured. So Jesus, of course, is responding directly to this man who's made this toast. And he's essentially saying, listen to me, because you're, you're missing something. Something rather big and important. And so he goes from using in the previous message last week in text, an example of a wedding feast, to now an example about the great banquet, which is, again, something that these Jewish men, and men in this room would have known all about and would be thinking about. So my question for you is in the text you see on screen here or in your Bibles, how many invitations do you see here? This is, this is not a trick question, but it's in the text. And, and, and actually, there are, it's a twofold invitation, isn't it? There are, there are two invitations being given here we're seeing in this text. And again, this was very, very standard in this Jewish culture of the day. The, the initial invitation to any feast, any great banquet, a wedding feast or a you know, major party, dinner party that was going on in someone's home, that invitation would be sent out weeks in advance, maybe up to a month, six weeks in advance. And, and, and when, when that invitation was delivered, the expectation was you would tell the servant of the master then your intentions. You would look at the invitation, receive it, and go, ah, uh, yeah, you know what, we, we've got another party we're going to, or you know, we're going to have a baby, or whatever the excuse might be. But you would let them know right then and there that, yeah, probably can't make it. Or, thank you, I'm honored to be invited to this great banquet. I will be there. That was actually the expectation. And of course, one of the reasons, main reasons in that day was, more so than today, obviously, were things like refrigeration. I mean, you needed to know exactly how many people were coming to this banquet, whether it was 30, 40, 50 people, so that you, you could have enough food on hand and, and so that it wouldn't be wasted. You needed to know that you had that. But there was also, you know, people's time to travel and stuff like that. So it was one of the reasons why the invitation went out first that way. And look what it says. The invitation went out to many. This is a big banquet. It goes out to many. So then what also would happen as the day approached, usually a few days before that day, Notice would be given to the invited guests, those who were expected to come. 
Now, again, one of the reasons why that would be done, would, what if something happened on the host's end, right? Like, you know, I wasn't able to get enough food, or I'm not well, or the, there's a change of plans. But that was the, the pattern. They would go out and, and listen. At that point, when the servant came to you at that point to clarify the invitation, it was at that point 100% expected, expected you were coming. This was not the opportunity or point for your excuse. To be a no-show or offer any excuse short of being on your deathbed would have been considered highly disrespectful and rude in that culture and in that day. So then as the date approached, usually a few days before, this notice was given. And so this, these are the invitations, the main invitations to this banquet. Now we're going to see further invitations coming up, but really we want to go now to point number two, which is the fun part, the excuses, the excuses. Verse 18 tells us, but they, listen, as the second, as a servant goes out to confirm the invitation, let them know that the food is prepared. It's going to be ready on Saturday. This is Thursday. The host is really looking forward to having you. But they all alike began to make excuses. Please hear this. This is a parable being taught by Jesus. But friends, we shouldn't consider it fiction we should seriously consider it actually the way Jesus sees things. Many, all alike, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, <laughs> and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. So in this story, we're told that they all began to make their excuses. And the first example, of course, is about real estate. It's about a piece of property, apparently. And so let's remember who's at this dinner party in this Pharisee's home. Let's remember who they are. The majority of them are, there's a few Pharisees, other religious leaders, but also based on the way Jesus has been speaking to them, there's some wealthy landowners here, don't you think? Many may have multiple properties. So the reality is they all know what real estate transactions look like or looked like in that day. And hear me when I say this they all would have known that this excuse was completely lame. In fact, they would have known that it was a lie, a blatant lie. They would have known that. As soon as Jesus said it, they would have went, okay, where's this parable going, Jesus? This, this is, that's not an, a legit excuse. If I was the host of a banquet like this, there's no way in the world I would accept an excuse like that. What we need to understand is that there was a way that purchases were made in that day, contractually. And the expectation was this, before, before you were even allowed to make an offer on a piece of property, you were required to go and, and, and actually walk the whole perimeter of the property. You were to make notes while you were doing this. You were to look uh, at over the property. You were to, how much uh, area or terrain was rocky, how much was good soil. You were supposed to make copious notes. And here's the point. When you came before the seller and the judge who would prepare the contract, you needed to know, uh, be able to show that you really understood what you were buying. Nobody bought the property first, and then went to look at it. Have any of you done that? Maybe some of you have. Online purchases? I don't know. It's dangerous. In the Bahamas somewhere? 
That was the understanding. That was a lame excuse. And they knew, they knew that this was a lie. They knew it. There was no making that part up. Then in verses 19 and 20, we read, And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And then another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, that sounds like a good excuse, right? We'll get to that one, right? Well, the next excuse actually is equally lame. In the same way that you'd never purchase a property without first viewing it and doing a proper inspection, you'd never purchase any beast of burden before testing it out. You wouldn't do it. That would be required that you would have to see, does this beast, can it actually, like the two of them, can they pull like, you know, a plow? I mean, I need to test that. That, again, was absolutely, absolutely known in that day. And this, of course, could also relate to some of our uh, beasts of burdens today, right? Some of you may know who follow uh, or are friends of mine on Facebook. Uh, you'll know that uh, this past week, you know, Janice and I went looking for a new-to-us vehicle. And uh, we, it was in it, I mean, we had a 15-year-old Volvo that I've wanted for some time to put in neutral and push off the cliff on the Sea to Sky Highway. Right? But it was Janice's girl, and she loved that car. And, you know, we got 420,000 kilometers out of it which, over 15 years, which is amazing. And we've had three, and so anyway, the, she found another one, you know, new to us in Coquitlam, and, uh, you know, f- interesting stuff from the same dealership that bought her girl from. And so we went out there on uh, Friday, I think it was, and uh, we, we, uh, we, we did what? We took it for a test drive. I mean, wouldn't you? And I told Janice before we got there, I said, listen, honey, this thing's, you know, it's a few years old, it's got so many KMs on it. Um, I need to know, and I'll know when I start driving it, if it's got any, whatever. I need to, to do that. But there's an interesting thing that happens when you do that, by the way. It's not just for you. It's a contractual thing that's happening at the same time. The, the salesman, who was a really good guy, by the way, if you need a reference, I'll happily give you his name afterwards. Um, but he, when we pulled over so that I could get out of the driver's seat and Janice could do the driving, uh, he said, let's open the hood and let's have a look at that and let's walk around the vehicle and let's look at that. And, and uh, you know, how do you, what do you think about it so far? And, you know, it was very low-key. It wasn't like he was pushing or anything, which I really appreciated. But what, what was he doing? Same thing. You know, when we got there and we were prepared to put our uh, signature and pay the money, the contractual agreement was being made and it was understood that we were accepting this because we had checked it out. And so again, everyone that was at this dinner party, when it came to the oxen, this is really important for an agrarian society like that in that day. You would never purchase the animal first. Because there was, I'll tell you what, there was no 100% money back guarantees in those days, okay? Just so you know, you drive it off the lot, it's yours. Well, we got 30 days, but that's okay. <laughs> Secondly, there is the I'm married excuse. And again, for so many obvious reasons, to the men at this dinner party, this also was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was a terrible excuse. Today, we might go, come on, that's a pretty good excuse. Well, you know, you got to think about it. Four to six weeks earlier, you've been given an invitation and you're like, awesome, thank you. Are you married yet? You know you're going to get married? Is this like, did you elope? Right? Like, what is going on here in this story? No, come on. In Jewish culture, again, the, the reality is, is that uh, it, once you were betro- there was a betrothal period and then you're married and there's a week-long wedding feast, 
which we've just been through and Jesus has taught about. And then there's, very important in that day, something called the consummation of that, of that marriage. Okay? It doesn't happen quite in the same way today as it should in our culture. But that would also be like the honeymoon period. And that was, that was a period of, that was extended. That would be a month or two or three where the couple would be off on their own and away from family. Then, as far as the family was concerned, you're married. Contractual agreement. No getting out of this one. Or so we would think. So besides that, an invitation, listen, to a great banquet, a great banquet, that's not something that people in that day would make silly excuses about. They'd be looking forward to going to a great banquet like that. Wouldn't you? A really great and grand banquet. So... What does that look like today, honestly? Like, this is a 2,000-year-old story, right? It's a parable, true, true but it's, it's based on truth. What's that look for us today? Well, I think, first of all, we should notice two very important things. The first two examples or excuses are about what? They're about our stuff. They're about possessions, Right? They really are. They're about possessions, about whether our homes, our properties, our toys, our beasts of burdens, which I've alluded to today, could be our cars or trucks, which we use for work, right? They could be those things. So what we need to do today is we need to ask ourselves a few honest questions. Honest questions. Do I like my house, my property, my wife, my spouse, my toys, my things? more than Christ. Do I get more joy uh, out of them than I do gathering with the church? Black Friday was just the other day, right? And, and, and I, you know, I, was, I, I don't know why they put this on my Facebook feed, but somehow they know that I'm, I'm needing a new tailor-made driver. I, can, I don't know why they know that, right? And I, I, I see this tailor-made driver. I mean, I've got one. It's 10 years old. It still works. It's good enough for my game, but this one was on sale for $300 off, right? Like, so, I mean, I'm looking at this ad. It keeps popping up on my news feed. Weird, eh? And, and, and I'm looking at it going, and, and, you know, I know my wife, and she's like, she's very frugal. But when it comes to, you know, getting me gifts for Christmas, she, she's, she's really, she's not a spendthrift, but she's generous. <laughs> and she goes, honey, if, that, if you want that, because she knows I might be helping her buy a car, right? But, but, she's, but I'm looking at it, and so, but honestly, here's the decision that we need to be thinking about. Like, I could buy that driver for $300 off. Now, think about it. It's $699 regular, $399. Most of you are thinking, Glenn, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, $400 for something that you're not going to get to use until April or May? I know. I know. But maybe think about it this way. What could the decision be like? Well, I, I can tell you what it might be like. I'm not a wealthy man, to be honest with you. So the reality might be, it said, might be like, well, I could take that $400 and buy that driver now and put it in my bag and be able to look at it every couple of days and be dreaming about April, May, or not tithe this month. If the first two are about possessions, and they are, they're about our possessions, the third one is about our affections. We can love and have affection towards things, but this is about a different kind of affections. And I think this one creates more problems for most of us. But put together with possessions accounts for the two main reasons 
why people either today reject the invitation to even follow Christ in the beginning, in the first place, or having received forgiveness and salvation, we're still drawn to these things more than Jesus. I mean, think about it. Think about it again. I've got to give you another example, which is painful, I know, but think about it. You know, somebody on a Saturday night calls you up and says, hey, guess what? You know, the Canucks are sold out, um, and there's a game tomorrow. It's an early game. It's at noon. Or Seattle, Seahawks, you're a big fan there, right? And there's a game tomorrow, like at 2 o'clock, but we've got to drive there. Or there's a concert or whatever there might be going on tomorrow at, like, noon or 1 o'clock. So what that means is... If you're going to come with me and take my seat that I'm inviting you to take, you're going to have to miss church tomorrow morning. Okay? How many? I mean, don't raise your hands. I remember very clearly a number of years ago, um, I, I made this illustration. It was about Nehemiah, and I'm standing here on stage, and uh, I'm looking for an illustration about how easily distracted we are because that was about the passage in Nehemiah where Nehemiah was being tempted to be distracted from the mission that God has called him to. And, and I'm standing here on stage and I had an illustration in my notes, but I'm looking outside and it is snowing like crazy. Right? And so I said, hey, how many of you uh, like either, like last Saturday night got a text from somebody and said, hey, pow day. Actually, one person who was in the, in the church was quite offended that I used that illustration because they actually thought I was speaking about them and something they'd done the previous Sunday. Right? I, I didn't know, but that's what happened. And, uh, but listen, I, I think, yes, there are the big ticket items that distract us or we might go, well, you know, church one Sunday, you know, or, or small group or whatever it might be, or serving or giving or whatever it might be in the church, just like this one time because, quite frankly, friends, I think we can be distracted for things that are of far less value than some of the things I've just cited. Possessions and affections can become our excuses. To following Jesus in the very first place. So lastly on that point, I think it's fair to say that the main reason why many people today refuse the invitation to accept Jesus in the first place is because for some reason either because of the church and the way it's been presented or, quite frankly, their own minds, they think they're going to be giving up the best life now. I'm not going to be able to have the life that I want, the things that I want, the person that I want, the lifestyle that I want. If I become a Christian, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You know? Well, that's true. But that can be the viewpoint, and that's one of the main reasons People refuse to accept the invitation from Jesus into the life that he wants to give them and to this great banquet that is coming. Most are afraid, as I said, that they will not have the possessions and affections that they believe are better, sadly, than the ones that Jesus has to offer. Number three, the invitation stands. Oh, this is good news. Verse 21 goes on to say, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Well, then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and the lame. Bring them. I read that and I think to myself, how gracious is God? <laughs> how gracious is God? This is Jesus who's the inviter here, right? 
I mean, at that point in time, he could have basically said, okay, okay, be that way. I'll just have dinner with these few people who showed up. Have you ever felt that way? You invite a bunch of people and then there's excuses and they don't come to small group, whatever it might be, haha, okay, and, and you're disappointed, and, but okay. No, not Jesus. He doesn't. And listen, he invites. He asks his servant to go and, okay, <laughs> invite somebody else. It's last minute, but invite them. He doesn't. Let me ask this. I think this is important. What would you do? What would you do, actually, if you had a meal like that planned and you were expecting 40 to 50 people and, and all of a sudden you find maybe eight or nine people are going to show up and, and, and there's really no way that you can get more people to come and be there on that day? What would you do with all that food that was going to go to waste? Well, I know some of you and I know your hearts and I know what you have done in the past. Well, you'd say, well, that's fine. Let's call up Jeff and Nick and get the ledge opened up and let's invite people from the street to come for dinner. Hello? And if there was still any food over, what would you do with it? Well, Helping Hands is down the block. We could take it to them and give it to them, right? That would be helpful. That, friends, is exactly what Jesus, I believe, is doing today, every day, and will do until he comes again. He is continually inviting people to this table. Excuses don't bother him. Well, they do. He gets angry, the text tells us. Goes on and says, And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, to the hedges, to the ends of the earth, and compel people to come in, that my house may be full the invitation stands, doesn't it? If you're breathing, you have a pulse here today, you know the invitation stands. Amen? It still stands. The desire of our Heavenly Father and of Jesus, whose banquet this is, is that His table will be full. It will be. He knows exactly the number of people who are going to be there. It will be. And here's why. He knows what we do not know, or at least do not fully appreciate, even as Christians in our life today. This banquet is about much, much more than the finest VQA wines or French wines or gourmet food that satisfies beyond any culinary experience at the most amazing restaurants in Vancouver, and there are many. Much more than anything you've ever imagined is what this banquet is actually about. One of my favorite commentators, a man who I've met on a couple of occasions from, from England, Dr. David Gooding, he wrote these words in his commentary on Luke, and I want to put them on screen for you because I believe they're beautiful and because he gets it, and it's really what this is all about. He said this, the metaphor of feasting, as, a dist as distinct from merely eating a meal, assures us that no True potential appetite, desire, or longing given by us, by God, will prove to have been a deception. This goes far beyond food and wine. This goes beyond to every desire of the heart that, for love and affection in our world today. But all will be granted their richest and most sublime 
fulfillment. This great and grand banquet then should be seen as a picture of the kingdom of heaven, yes, and eternity with our host Jesus, yes, but also providing us with the ultimate satisfaction. We, we can't even put this, the pictures together, but this is Jesus telling the story, and he, and he is going to go to the cross to purchase your invitation perfectly for this amazing grand banquet. And so his invitations are open for all now. The invitation still stands. It's going to be beyond your wildest expectations. Dream big, kids. Just dream big. However, like Jesus has been saying for many months now, there is also this. Our last verse for today says, For I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So as we learned back at the end of chapter 13, when Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God, which he's been teaching about repeatedly, he used the phrase, he said these words, strive to enter by the narrow gate. And we learned during that message, hard, hard stuff, but we learned that basically he's saying, look, the door is open right now, but few are going to choose it because there's, there's another wide way, which many are choosing. But he also, in that passage, tells us, listen, that door is going to close. He was telling it to the religious leaders in that day. The door is one day going to close, and that is it. But then he also, standing in front of them, he, he points behind him. He says, but do you see the open table? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are at that table, and look who else? The blind, the crippled, the lame, the poor are at that table. But for those men, it was too late. It was too late. They'd received over and over and over and over again the invitations from Jehovah, Yahweh God. And they had excuses. So think about it. To this Jewish audience, this parable would have been a threefold picture, really, of God's grace upon grace to the people of God throughout history. They, they should be putting this together, one would hope, at this meal, right? And, and he, he has saved them already from captivity, right? And invited them into his promised land. He invited them to be his people, for him to be their God, his God. Their God, pardon me, he gave them the law and the prophets, and now in Jesus, he gives them their long-awaited Messiah, and he invites them to personally trust him for their salvation, not their religion, not their good words. My son, who I have sent to you, they have continually, however, over the centuries, over the years, been completely unfaithful to God. We're no different. We're no different than our Jewish brothers and sisters. Rejecting his grace, his invitations, they continue though, don't they? As the scripture teaches us, in the days ahead, however, they will choose a murderer and a thief over Jesus. And since their rejection, Jesus has continued to invite the outcasts into his kingdom, which includes you and I here today. I mean, remember this, while he was dying on the cross... There was someone right beside him. And what did he do? He invited him to the table. That's grace. 
the invitation still stands. It's beautiful. So let me ask you a closing question, and we'll end with this. Have you noticed there's another character in this parable? All right, we've seen that there's the many, the, the recipients of the original invitation. There's many of those people, right? We've seen them. Um, there's clearly all of the, the initial invitees and those who make the excuses. There's the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, those people who are on the streets, all the outcasts, and of course, there's Jesus. Who have we missed in this story? It's pretty important. I can see some of you going, light bulb, I see it. It's the servant. Who could that be? The servant of the master, right? If you've been at the Rock Church for very long, you will have seen it on our e-newsletter or some of our brochures or you hear me saying it repeatedly. We are a family of missionary servants. And we take that from the Great Commission when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And so when you become a believer in Christ, when you've, when you've received and accepted the invitation to follow Christ, you immediately become a child of God. And he gives you a new family, your blood-bought family, this family, the church. And then you're baptized into the name of the Son. And who is he? Well, he's Jesus. And, and what is, is he to us? He's our king. And, and how do we serve our king? Well, in the exact same way that Jesus served. We serve others. And how do we do that? Because we are baptized into the Holy Spirit, we become what? Sent ones. We become missionaries. Sent by Jesus into this world to do what? To invite people to come and see, to follow Jesus, and to this great banquet. Friends, I want to encourage you today a couple things in closing. Number one, I want to encourage you, Christian, gotten a little frustrated, tired of inviting, and people don't come, or people come and then they walk away. Read this text this week. Be encouraged. When, when the master says to you, go and ask them again. Invite them again. Then go and do it. And if they continue to refuse to hear you or hear the Holy Spirit's prompting to that invitation, somebody else. Somebody else. Maybe the least expected in your sphere of influence or that you run into here at the ledge over coffee or at work or wherever it might be. In other words, don't give up. But there is a point at which maybe you should. Maybe you should. There are others, many others, God is calling and inviting. Lastly, I have to say this. Be careful. Be careful. The invitation still stands. The door is still open. But one thing that I do know, because the scripture does teach this as well, there can come a point in anyone's life, any person's life, where the heart can become hardened. And, and here's the thing. If you've heard the invitation to follow Jesus and you've yet to take it yet, be very careful. Every excuse, every rejection becomes a harder heart. Be careful. Be careful. Don't delay. Receive that invitation today. Receive that invitation today. Finally, as we move to communion this morning,
I hope you will see the connection here. Isn't it amazing? It's a beautiful connection. We're going to celebrate a family meal. It's a representation of the family meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. It was his last Passover meal. He, the, the Lamb of God. But let's, say, let's also see this here today, friends. This was also intended, why we were encouraged to do this as often as we gathered together is because this is a picture, this is a foretaste of that banquet to come. Maybe as we break bread today, as we go to communion today, meditate on that. And so my question for you is, do you have your invitation ready to come to his table? Pray with me, would you?